is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'd like us to do something a little bit different this morning. Let's stand together as the Lord's Word is read to us, so please stand. Page 850 in your pew Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have be filled with grief and have put out from your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But I am now writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, or an idolater, or a slanderer, or a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of, of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge, judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So last week we continued the mini-series that I was, was going through on, on what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. And last week, we started uh, basically the first half on a, in a message on church discipline. And uh, as I began to study it, I, I realized that I just really was not able to do the topic justice in one sermon, because it's something that is so foreign to our experience today. Many of the older folks in our church would have had experience of church discipline, but it is something that is, has fallen out of favor with the church in general. And so it's really important that we look at what Scripture has to say about church discipline and we submit our thinking, our presuppositions, to what God's Word has to teach us on this subject. And if you remember last week, I tried to shatter unbiblical caricatures of church discipline that present and dis that distort the true nature and practice of discipline. And I explained that, that quite often the false presuppositions that we have about, about church discipline often come when we form our pictures from what the world would tell us. And if you remember, I, I presented the picture of a, of a red-faced pastor yelling at somebody, pointing his finger at, at a cowering person on their knees. And that's, that's the way that our world depicts church discipline, but that is so far from the case when we do it the way biblical, the Bible tells us to do. Many of us may have even had bad experiences of church discipline. I know that I have when it was practiced in, a, in an unbiblical way. But we need to form our thinking from what God's Word has to say. We need to submit ourselves to the whole counsel of God, not just the parts that are, are, are fun or easy. So if you remember, last, the, the initially when my first sermon, I actually talked about baptism as a visual or visible demonstration of our union with Christ. And then the next week, I examined the church membership covenant as a solemn commitment for Christians to partner together, to love each other, to serve God together, to be encouraging one another in the faith, and even to be admonishing and rebuking one another for sin. But if you remember, I also highlighted the fact that the baptism and membership are also declarations where baptism is, is primarily a declaration that we have joined ourselves with the invisible universal church, 
And the membership covenant is a declaration that we have joined ourselves with the visible local church. And I also explained that church discipline is also a declaration. In its negative form, when you are going to somebody in, in their sin and confronting them with their sin, it's a declaration too. When the individual does not repent, when you follow through the steps of church discipline, the church is making a declaration. It is a declaration that we no longer see this person as a part of the local visible church, nor do we see them as a part of the universal invisible church. In other words, we are declaring that the person under discipline is no longer a part of our church family, and nor do we believe that this person is in fact a Christian. Now last week I presented a quick overview of the how of church discipline, but this week I wanted to just, just quickly expand on that. So please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 presents the, the usual pattern, the general pattern of, of church discipline. Now, before we get into the text here, we need to realize that before doing any of this, when we see an individual in a pattern of sin, what's the first thing that we need to do? We need to pray. We need to pray for the individual that they would indeed repent of their sin. Because God doesn't always need us. In fact, God doesn't really ever need us. But sometimes in his sovereign plan, he chooses to use us for his glory. But one of the things that God will do quite often is respond to our prayers. We need to pray that the Lord would work in the heart of the individual. And sometimes you might not even need to go and say anything to them at all. I remember a number of years ago when I was in seminary, uh, a friend had, had a bunch of us over for, for dinner on a Saturday night. And in the course of our conversation, he told us about a, a horrific, horrifically violent movie that he had watched. And I didn't say anything to him about it at the time. And in fact, when I woke up on Sunday morning, the first thing that popped in my head, even though I had never seen this movie, was the images that he had depicted from this movie. And it was really the last thing that I wanted in my mind Anytime, especially on a Sunday morning when I'm preparing my heart for worship of the Lord. And I thought about going and talking to him about it, but I determined that I, that I would pray and, and, and just commit him to the Lord. And do you know what happened? A, a few weeks later, he actually came to me and, and said, John, the Lord has, been, has convicted me about watching these movies, and I'm not going to watch these movies anymore. So God didn't require me to go to him at all. The Lord, in his sovereign plan, answered my prayers and worked in this man's heart. But sometimes those, the Lord will not answer those prayers until you need to go to the person, actually talk to them and directly deal with them about their sin. So you need to pray not only that the person, that the Lord will be preparing the person's heart, but you also need to pray that the Lord would be working in your heart, that you would go to him not in pride, not in judgment and unforgiveness and anger, but in gentleness. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, you've heard this many times. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle with all men, able to teach in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God will grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil after being taken captive by him to do his will. So we pray there that the Lord would work in our hearts so that we can go to that person with the right spirit, but we are also praying that the Lord would do a work of repentance, that the Lord would grant them repentance. As the text says, repentance is a gift from God, so we need to pray that the Lord would do that in their hearts. But then, if the individual still doesn't repent, you take one or two others along as witnesses. And then if they still won't listen, you take them to the church. You publicly name the sinner and publicly name the sin. 
You need to then exhort those in the church family to go and talk to that person, those that know and love the person, those that have, have equity in a relationship with that person, to be praying and to go to that person. If you remember last week, I, I talked to you about the example from my church in, in Kentucky where, where over 40 people made an appointment to get their hair cut by this man who was, was in sin and was walking in unrepentance. So we need to go to that person. And if the person still does not repent, then the person is again brought before the church and the church will vote and will be removed from church membership. And that's the picture that, that Jesus presents here in Matthew chapter 18. But we need to remember here that we, that there's a responsibility, a responsibility. I talked about this last week as well, that when this person is excommunicated from the church, you treat them as an unbeliever, which means you go to them and proclaim the gospel to them. You don't just spend time in fellowship with a person as though there is nothing wrong. You don't sit down and enjoy a meal with the individual because that would then defeat the purpose of what you're trying to do. You're hoping that through the, the shame of being put out of the church, the shame of being removed from fellowship, you're hoping that this person will come to repentance. But if everybody just pretends nothing happened, then that's not going to happen. The person can just go on in their sin. And in 1 Corinthians 5, the chapter we're going to focus on this morning, the Apostle Paul says, don't even eat with them. But, but we don't avoid them altogether. If you see the person walking down the street, you don't cross to the other side of the street. If you see them in the grocery store, you don't try to hide behind the watermelons. You, you, you still talk to the person. But you, you prayerfully call them to repentance. You prayerfully ask them to turn from their sin and to turn back to Christ. But as we'll see from our passage this morning, that, that, that this process of church discipline is not a one-size-fits-all. Scripture is not one-size-fits-all. Scripture doesn't read like an encyclopedia where you can, you can alphabetically look up a particular topic and find everything that is said itemized under that particular topic. Sometimes you need to do the hard work of digging in God's Word to find out what we're to do. And you'll see that when it comes to discipline, like so many other areas in Scripture, that different issues, different circumstances call for a different response. So whereas Matthew 18 provides a general framework, there are times when, when a particular form of sin requires a different approach. So there's times when, when the process of discipline that's presented in Matthew chapter 18 is actually circumvented by the nature of the sin. For example, in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, the Apostle Paul says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Elsewhere he says, or here in this passage rather, he says, Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Okay, now that's already different from what we saw in Matthew chapter 18, where we're, we're viewing the person as as an unbeliever, as a Gentile and a tax collector. But in verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 3, Paul says that the church is to avoid any brother who is walking in idleness or laziness. So there's a specific form of sin. Now, people don't generally think of, of laziness as something that would warrant church discipline. But this here shows how seriously... God deals with sin. In that particular case, there's a person who is not willing to work, but is wanting handouts from the church. So they say we need to avoid such a person. Also, in Romans 16, 17, Paul tells us to avoid those who cause division. So people who are whispering behind the scenes, rebuke that person. If somebody comes to you with gossip, you need to tell them to repent. You need to tell them to ask forgiveness of the person that they are gossiping about. And if they refuse, tell them you will go yourself to expose that sin. So 1 Corinthians 5 here presents yet another 
example of church discipline and another format, another way that we are to deal with it. The Corinthian church was in a mess. Not only was there disunity in the church, with people actually taking, believers were taking other believers to court. And there was sexual immorality with prostitutes. And there was one situation where a man was actually committing sexual immorality with his father's wife. And all of this was tolerated in the church. In fact, they were proud about it. It's, it's probably that, that they, were, they were saying, look at, look at our grace that we're offering to this person. Look how open-minded we are that we're willing to tolerate this thing that God's word says is so abhorrent. Does that sound familiar? Could that describe the Kelowna church? The Apostle Paul says, Ought you rather not to be mourning? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. He's telling the church to deal with this sin, to deal with it strictly, to deal with it quickly, and to deal with it decisively. Paul is most emphatic. He is saying, deal with it. Deal with the sin. There's no lengthy process here. The Corinthians are simply told in verses 3 to 5 that the Apostle Paul has already pronounced judgment on that person. Now, of course, the Apostle Paul is no longer with us, but his writings are with us. So when somebody is doing something that is that seriously against God's word, and all sin is serious, we need to deal with it decisively. So he says that when the church was assembled in the name of the Lord and his spirit was present, or in our case, when his word is present, we are to hand, they were to hand this person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, in the NIV, it says so that the sinful nature would be destroyed. But the when in this passage is clear. It is gross sexual immorality. And it must be dealt with. But removal from fellowship is not only for such, quote-unquote, serious sins as sexual morality. All forms of willful, unrepentant sin are disciplinable. Discipline can be a means of grace in any form of sin when the person continues in that pattern. Now, it's not as though somebody sins once, if they they tell a lie once, that they're removed from fellowship. But when you see a pattern of that in their life, when you see them lying again and again and again, they will eventually fall under church discipline. Likewise for the pattern of laziness or or failure to attend church. So all of these things are are disciplinable. In 1 Corinthians 5, we also see the why. We We see the main reasons for the practice of discipline. We see it for the reputation of the church. And of the Lord, we see it for restoration of the individual, we see it for remedy, we see it for righteousness, and we also see it for revival. So those are going to be the main points that I want to deal with as far as the why of church discipline. Now, according to a pamphlet that was published by John MacArthur's church, that's Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, the purpose of church discipline is the spiritual restoration of fallen members and the consequent strengthening of the church and the glorifying of the Lord. When the sinning believer is rebuked and he turns from his sin and is forgiven, he is won back to fellowship with the body and with its head, Jesus Christ. The goal of church discipline, then, is not to throw people out of the church or to feed the self-righteous pride of those who administer the discipline. It is not to embarrass people or to exercise authority and power in some unbiblical manner. The purpose is to restore a sinning believer to holiness and to bring them back to a pure relationship within the assembly. Now, John MacArthur's church is a massive church of, of many thousands of people. Can you imagine being brought before several thousand people 
and having your pet sin exposed. That sin that you secretly entertain and think that nobody else knows about. God knows about it. And God will bring it to light. But you know what? As difficult as it would be to be brought before thousands of people for some sin, I think it would be far worse to be brought before this church for sin. Do you know why? Because we love each other. Because we care about each other and we care what we think about each other. So the the fear of being brought before people that you love and respect is a means of grace that can help you from falling into willful sin. So it's also a protection. It's a protection against the temptation for sin. But the five main things that I want to draw out from this passage, as we said, that church discipline protects the reputation of the church and the Lord. It's for restoration of the individual. It is for a remedy against sin. It is for righteousness and for revival. So the first one, for reputation. Church discipline provides protection for the reputation of the church and more importantly, for the Lord that she represents. Look at verse 1 of our passage here. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Now, our culture has begun to accept abominable practices that 20 years ago the world would never have accepted. But here we have an extreme example that not even the world accepted. Probably something akin to that in our culture would be if there was an unrepentant pedophile in our midst. Somebody who was was actively involved in in the most lewd forms of sexual immorality through pornography on the internet and and maybe even actively involved in that sin. And the church would do nothing about it. Now, as vile as you think that that may be, we need to remember that all of our sin is vile in God's eyes. And we must deal decisively with it. Here, even the pagans said it was wrong. They saw this as an abominable practice, and then the church is acting as though it's all okay. And so, as Paul says in Romans 2.24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The name of God was being blasphemed because of people's failure to deal with sin. How many times have you shared the gospel with somebody only to hear them say to you that I don't want anything to do with the church because the church is full of hypocrites? I'm sure we've all heard that on occasion. Now, of course, there is a degree of hypocrisy in every single person, even in the most godly saint. But when somebody's life is characterized by hypocrisy, by saying one thing and doing another, the reputation of the church is slandered and the reputation of God is slandered. The church that is called by, her, by God's name is slandered when people fail to deal with sin in the midst of the church. Now, people in the world are always always watching and looking for an opportunity to discredit you, to discredit your message, to discredit your God. And they're quite happy, usually, to condemn others for behavior that they would condone in themselves. They might take an issue like like dishonesty or, or drunkenness and think, well, that's a, that, you know, I know that I do that, and that's okay, but the church shouldn't accept that. 
The church shouldn't accept those who are drunkards or liars. And so when those things are not dealt with, again, they use it as an excuse. Now, of course, they have no excuse. They have no excuse, but we are the ones who bear the name of Christ. And we are the ones whose lives should increasingly look like Jesus Christ. When we, when we do sin, and we all sin, we need to exhibit repentance, confession. And we need to ask forgiveness of the Lord and those whom we have wronged. So when non-Christians see, see church go as sinning in any number of ways, including dishonesty in business, or showing up late for work, or treating their families poorly, or laughing at crude jokes, or gossiping, or watching inappropriate movies, or dressing immodestly, or gazing at those who are dressed immodestly, or driving aggressively, or losing their temper through the week, and then going to church on a Sunday and pretending like they're worshiping God, those on the outside look and point the finger and say, hypocrite. And we are becoming their excuse from turning away from their sin and turning to the Lord. However, when a church deals firmly and decisively with sin by going through the process of discipline and even going so far as to remove the person who is unrepentant, unbelievers take notice. They may view it as harsh and unloving, but they will acknowledge that at least these people are serious about dealing with sin. I know of one situation where a man had been attending a church for some time and was living with his girlfriend. And he was enjoying the benefits of the church without being part of the church. Now, of course, those on the outside would not have any problem with somebody living with, with their girlfriend. They knew that Christians should be against this practice and that Christians should deal with it. So the reputation of this particular church was being tarnished by the behavior of this individual. Now, he was told that he was not welcome in the church unless he changed his behavior. Now, this man was not a Christian. He didn't even claim to be a Christian. But he was removed from the church. Now, some people might say that that is, is unfair. That it, They might say, well, how is this person going to repent and be saved if he's told he's not allowed to come to church because of his sin. Well, as I mentioned last week, most cases of church discipline will involve those who are members, but in this case, because of, of the public nature of his sin, he was removed from the church. But those who would say that we, that we can't do this because this person doesn't claim to be a believer are forgetting the purpose of the church. Church is for the church. Church is for Christians. When we come together to worship the Lord on a Sunday morning, the primary purpose of us being here is not evangelism. Of course, we do do evangelism. You hear the gospel preached here every Sunday. But our primary purpose is to come together as a family, to worship our Lord, and to encourage each other in the worship of the Lord. So, so we're hoping that, that as you are built up here on a Sunday morning, that you will go out and do evangelism. You will go out and do it with the people that you're rubbing shoulders with in the grocery stores, in the, in the hair salon, and in a taxi cab, or, or wherever you find yourself through the week. But back to that man who's removed for the church for living with his girlfriend. What do you think happened to him? He repented and was saved and has become a vital part of that church. Now, of course, we, we don't take situations as being authoritative. God's word tells us to do that no matter what, to deal with sin no matter what. But quite often, it's the process of discipline that will actually lead to the restoration of the erring individual. 
The Apostle Paul instructed the Corinthian church in verse 5, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It was hoped that through being removed from, from fellowship, he would be shamed into, into repentance. Now, it says here, handing this person over to Satan, and most likely this means that, that when he's, he's handed over and put out of the church, he's being handed over into the world, which is the realm of Satan. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So they're going out of the church and into the world, which is the realm of Satan. And here we see, too, that the ESV reads that he was handed over for the destruction of the flesh. And although there are often physical consequences for sin, this is not always the case. But we live in a culture that is focused on harm mitigation, on harm mitigation or harm reduction. So in order to, in order to fight against AIDS, Rather than promoting abstinence, we have schools putting prophylactics in washrooms. And rather than, than telling people to stay off drugs, we're setting up shooting galleries where people can safely inject heroin. When I was in Australia, this, this, I find this unbelievable, but it was actually the church that was spearheading the, the, the setting up of shooting galleries where somebody could go and be given a needle and have a nurse there present so this person, this drug addict, could shoot heroin safely. And the church was doing that. How far has the church fallen from dealing with sin in the way God tells us to deal with sin? The hope is that church discipline will be a means of grace in order to bring that person to repentance. Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So we need to learn to see church discipline as an example of God's love for us. Church discipline can be a means of grace to help us get back on track. The person who loves you the most is the person who will tell you the most truth. The person who loves you is the one who is going to overcome the fear of men and overcome the, the concern of, of you thinking ill of them and lovingly go to you and tell you to repent. And it's God's means of grace to help you come back to him. When a, loving, when, a, when, a, when a child repeatedly tries to touch a hot element on the stove and, and the parent lovingly smacks the child on the hand or on some other part of the anatomy, that parent is exhibiting love towards that child. But the dangers of sin, of unrepentant sin, are far, far graver than any hot element on a stove. Because there are eternal consequences to unrepentant sin. We need to realize, too, that there is a difference between punishment and discipline. When a church practices this, this form, it is not punishment. On a believer, punishment has been laid on Christ. And punishment is coming on the last day for all unbelievers. But the hopes is that this is discipline. Remember last week I talked about the root word of discipline is disciple. Disciple. So it's, it's being trained in righteousness to follow after Jesus and to, to, to repeatedly make it your pattern to turn away from sin and to follow Christ single-mindedly. That's discipline. And church discipline is a specific form and a specific requirement for all who are called his disciples. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, the Apostle Paul here speaks of the forgiveness and restoration of a man who was in willful sin. Now, there's some debate. Some actually think that, that he is referring here to the man from 1 Corinthians 5. Now, we don't know that that's the case. Paul is not specific here. But either way, the principle is the same. 
The principle is the, is the same. When the person repents, they are restored, they are forgiven, they are brought back with open arms back into the church family, and God is glorified. And as I said last week, I saw this happen again and again and again in, in Louisville. When those who had been put out of the church repented and came back, they came back and were restored into full fellowship. Next one, remedy. Remedy, and that's, that's really in verses 6 to 11. This here is actually the main reason that Paul presents for removing the unrepentant sinner in this for this particular sin. And he uses the analogy of yeast. Now, when people make bread these days, usually they'll go to the grocery store and, and buy it. They don't make it at all, but quite often they'll just put all of the ingredients into a bread machine on a timer and just leave it so they don't see the practice of what's happening. But when you put just a little bit of yeast into that, that batch of dough, what happens? You leave it for a couple of hours, and that yeast works its way through the whole, the whole lump of dough until the dough expands. It has an effect on the whole of the batch of dough, on that whole loaf of bread. And throughout Scripture, yeast is used as a picture for sin. It's a type, or allegorically presented for sin. And that's why he says here that that we are to that it's the the, um, the to cleanse out the leaven or the the yeast, and that's why the Passover meal was celebrated with unleavened bread, because that represents the the, the removal of sin. In fact, in the Jewish homes, in the during the Passover week, every bit of yeast was be to, to be removed from from their home. And that's a picture. Every part of that Passover meal was a picture that pointed to the cross of Christ and his dealing with sin. So, so is the case, as with yeast, so with sin. If you don't deal with sin, it will work imperceptibly its way through the body and cause the whole body to be affected. One particular sin that we need to be careful of is that of bitterness that are bitterness, and, and, and we see this repeatedly. Hebrews 12, verse 5, the, the writer says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Bitterness spreads through the sins of judgment, unforgiveness, gossip, and slander. And left unchecked, it will kill the body. It will kill a church if it is not dealt with. So church discipline provides a remedy against disease in the body. If you remember two weeks ago, I spoke of, of us as the body of Christ. And I explained that when, when a body part is stricken with a disease, like cancer or gangrene, that sometimes you have to amputate that particular body part in order to protect the rest of the body. So that's what church discipline is. It is a radical amputation of an infected body part. Because those diseases, gangrene and cancer, like, like sin, will, will work through the body and kill it. The Apostle Paul says here that, that we need to, to not even associate with sexually immoral people. And he says here he's not talking about sexually immoral people in the world or sinners in the world because then you would have to go out of the body altogether. He's talking here about those who are within the church. And he talks about sexually immoral and greedy and swindlers or idolaters. And he says if anyone who bears the name of a brother is guilty of these sins, don't even eat with such a one. Don't even eat with them. Now, it, it happens so gradually, but bad company corrupts good morals. You become like the people that you spend time with. Now, when I was in Australia, there was no particular moment in time when, when I would have said that 
that I have an Australian accent. In fact, the people used to say to me, even up until the time that I left, that I, I had a, still had a strong Canadian accent, but then I would come back here and my Canadian friends would say that I sounded Australian. But my accent changed slowly, imperceptibly, over the 10 years that I was there. In fact, it wasn't until sometime after I'd returned to Canada and I was watching uh, my brother's uh, wedding video with my, with my brother and his wife and my parents, and I was watching the video and, and I had prayed during the, the service and, I, and I, I asked God's blessing in the, in the wedding. And, it's, and I just like, whoa, I did not realize that my Australian accent had become that strong. That's the case with sin. You don't see how it works on you. We're told to follow after God with those who are, are serving God with, with a pure conscience. So we need to find out, find people that are, are serious about their relationship with the Lord. And we need to go and spend time with that person. Because just like bad company corrupts good morals, so also good company improves good morals. So we need to, to be in fellowship with people who are like us. We need to remember that what, what is written here in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet one another as the habit is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Fellowship is not sitting next to somebody for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. If you are not building into each other's lives with God's word, you are still disobeying Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. So true fellowship is spending time with each other through the week and, and talking about spiritual issues and living through one another's joys and their trials and praying with one another through them. And when you're involved in that kind of fellowship, when you're really working together as a body that is encouraging each other and spurring each other on, the thought of being removed from such fellowship is terrifying to you. I said this earlier, but because you are so embedded in church life, because you are so much a part of, of the church family, you don't want to be severed from the body. And it's going to be an added incentive to keep you from repenting. But we also need to strive to be the kind of people that would be missed if we're not there on a Sunday morning. There's a few people not here this morning. If we, we miss having Lucille here. We miss having Dave here. We miss having the Cormiacs here. They're part of our family. They're part of our family, and, and we, we want to build that family life. Second last point, righteousness. By practicing church discipline, we are also promoting righteousness. We are actually making a judgment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul condemns the Corinthian church for taking one another to court. He says in verses 2 and 3, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Have you thought about that? That one of your roles on Judgment Day is to bring judgment on the world and to bring judgment on angels. So we are to, to, to judge trivial matters and we are to judge in the form of church discipline. And people might say, whoa, whoa, whoa hang on a second. Judge not lest ye be judged. If I had a nickel for every time I've heard that, I would be a rich man. Judge not lest ye be judged. That verse is pulled out of context. Let's turn, with, let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 1, and we'll look at this for a minute. If you remember, I preached on this several months ago. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. 
For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not trample your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So Jesus is not talking here about avoiding all forms of judgment. He says elsewhere that we are to judge righteous judgment. He's he's talking here about not making a wrong judgment because you are failing to deal with your own sin. He says deal with your sin and then make a judgment. He talks here about dogs and pigs. What is that? He's, He's warning us here to watch out for those who are dogs and pigs and don't waste your time on them because they're not going to hear you anyway. How can you tell who's a dog or a pig without judging? You have to judge. We are commanded to judge. Only a fool sets aside all forms of judgment. So the the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5 is told to judge the person on the inside. Verse 12 God is judging outsiders. God is going to judge those in the world. And as we see, so will eventually we will do that. But inside the church, those, those who are inside the church, we are to judge. We're to judge them. We're commanded to do this here. And to fail to do this is disobedience to God. So he says we judge the person and we purge the evil person from our midst. And by doing that, we are bringing about God's righteousness. Remember that, that part of our mandate, part of our mandate in creation is to have dominion over the earth, to overturn the effects of the fall. And one of the effects of the fall is that sin would go unchecked. And so when, when a church practices discipline, we are establishing God's righteousness in the church. And we are serving as a light. We are serving as a light to a watching world, whether they accept the message we bring or not. Finally, revival. Now, now this isn't really present in the text, but it is one important aspect of church discipline. A number of us lately have been praying earnestly that the Lord would bring revival in our midst. Throughout the history of the church, revival has not happened apart from a a concerted effort of prayer among the saints. So we are praying that the Lord would bring revival in this church and in this city and in this country that the Lord would would be pleased to bring about worship where there once was rebellion. But one of the things that has to happen before revival can take place in the church is that sin needs to be dealt with. Sin needs to be dealt with. We see in in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, what the life was like in the early church. And Luke describes, describes the situation as, as people of, of God learning God's word together and spending time in fellowship and eating with one another and serving one another. And he says in verse 47, they were praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So when the true church functions as the church is called to function in Scripture, the Lord adds daily those who are being saved. So would you like to see this church full, not just of transfer growth, not just of people that are coming here from other churches, but full of new believers, new converts to Christ that we can love and serve one another with? If you want to see that, then make a commitment to deal with sin in your own heart. 
And we as a body need to commit together to dealing with sin corporately as a body as the need arises. There's a church growth strategist who said that what we need to do to build the church is to widen the front doors so more people can come in and to narrow the back doors so that fewer people can get out. And that's really happened, hasn't it? With this church growth movement, the church has become filled with the world and they've had to adjust their strategies and what they do in order to in order to cater to unbelievers. So in being seeker-sensitive, so many churches have thrown out the offensive parts of the gospel. And one of the offensive parts of the gospel is dealing decisively with sin. So the church is full of of tares, and the little bit of wheat that's there is is being choked out. Mark Dever says in his book, Nine Marks of a a Healthy Church, that instead what what we need to do, instead of of widening the front doors and narrowing the back doors, we need to narrow the front doors and widen the back doors. That we need to be extremely careful about who we say is indeed a member of the church. Very careful. Stringently careful getting to know them and asking them the hard questions and observing their life to see if they are indeed regenerate. And then widening the back doors by saying that that we're going to practice church discipline. If you prove by your life to not be a believer, we are going to deal with it. We're going to deal with it. And I know for me, I said this last week, that when I joined the church in Louisville, And part of the membership covenant was very explicit when it came to church discipline. I was comforted by that. Because I knew that they were going to deal seriously with my sin, that if I went into willful sin, that they were going to come after me and encourage me to come back to the Lord. And I knew that the leadership of the church was going to be careful to protect all of the sheep, including me in the church, from false professors coming in, those who would claim to be Christians but are not. And and that was a a form of protection. In the early days of the Southern Baptist Convention, they would annually, get this, annually discipline out of the church 2% of their membership. 2% of the, the, the Southern Baptist churches were being put out of the church for willful sin every single year. Now, a church growth strategist would think, oh, what are you doing? This is it's going to kill the church. But you know what happened? Those churches grew at double the population growth of the time. Because the church was doing what the church has been called to do, and God did what God is going to do. He added to their number those who were being saved. So I want to be thinking about this. I want us to be thinking about the practice of church discipline and what our responsibility is as a body to be dealing with sin in our own lives and to be dealing with sin in one another's another's lives. Next week, I'm going to be starting the book of James, Lord willing. Now, James is a very, very practical book, a very practical book. And and again, I would encourage each one of us, please take the time through the, the week to read James to study James, and to be preparing your heart for us to work through James together. And let James be a mirror to your heart to show you areas of sin that are in your life, and we all have them, that you may repent for the glory of God.